Robert Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International, and I'm going to be your guide as we seek to solve the biblical mystery of the fifth Feast of the Lord, the Feast of Trumpets. In part one of this video about the Feast of Trumpets, we learn that this feast is the only feast that God does not define its meaning and purpose. In either the two passages, Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29, does he give any purpose for the feast? As you search the rest of the scriptures, there is no apparent further teaching on the meaning of the feast. In fact, there's even a greater mystery when we consider those two passages in Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29, for they contain a total of nine verses about this feast and nothing more. Consequently, this feast is called a mystery by both Jewish and Christian Bible teachers. Because of this mystery, many ideas have been suggested as to its meaning, but none of them appear to be conclusive. The two most common explanations for the meaning of this feast are, first of all, from a Christian viewpoint, the feast is viewed as a picture of the rapture, based upon the use of trumpets in the passage. However, trumpets occur in several feast observances, and in actuality, the word trumpet doesn't even appear in the Hebrew for either the Leviticus or Numbers passage on the Feast of Trumpets. Additionally, I noted that God always addresses these feasts to national Israel, and never are they addressed to the church. Any application of a feast solely to a church event and not to Israel, such as the rapture, is either directly or indirectly the product of the teaching of replacement theology by Reformed theologians, and is biblically wrong. The second explanation is the Jewish teaching that this feast marks the start of the Jewish New Year. Now, the Feast of Trumpets is declared to be in the seventh month of Tishrei, but God declares in Exodus 12, too, that the first month of the year, Nisan, is the month of the Passover. Therefore, the seventh month cannot be New Year's. Regrettably, these two teachings are found in many books and sermons, both Jewish and Christian. Neither are scripturally based. No matter how often they are proclaimed or how loudly they are proclaimed, that is not the biblical answer to the mystery. Hence, we need to find the true meaning. Now, as I became interested in this feast many, many years ago, I concluded that it was unlikely that God would hide the meaning of this feast, since he defines basically the meanings of the six other feasts of the Lord. Thus, I decided to become a detective, Search for its meaning in the scriptures. In solving biblical mysteries, I have found that a good detective follows two key principles. The first principle is that when something in scripture appears to be unclear, appears to be baffling, or a mystery, that with diligent searching of the scriptures, 
and careful application of the rules interpretation, one can get a clearer understanding of the passage. Now, I do base this upon God's word in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. There God says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Notice carefully here, God says, all scripture. Thus, God gave all scripture to us to understand. He didn't merely pad his book with meaningless material. For example, some passages in the Old Testament prior to the New were hard to understand concerning the details of the coming of the Messiah. But the New Testament gives them clearer meaning and understanding. Certainly passages in the book of Revelation leave us with some wonder as to the details of some of the events. But the overall purpose of those events it's always understandable, even if we don't have the details clear. So the first principle is that basically with careful study of the scriptures, the meaning of baffling, mystery, unclear passages will become clearer. Our second principle is that God often follows patterns in scripture with respect to certain topics. By determining God's pattern, we can then extrapolate it to explain future actions by God, particularly with respect to prophecy. I believe this to be true with our mystery feast. If we can find a pattern on this feast in the scriptures, we should be able to establish God's purpose and meaning of the feast. So, get your magnifying glass, put on your deer stalker hat, as we follow these two principles to solve the mystery of the Feast of Trumpets. Based upon this first principle that God can clarify things in Scripture by studying other passages that relate to it, we found in our first part of our video, that there are three passages of scripture that do shed light upon the mystery of the Feast of Trumpets. They are the parallel accounts in 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 5 through 7, a passage in Ezra 3, and in Nehemiah chapter 7 and 8. Recall that each passage shares the following characteristics. They all occur in the seventh month, they involve sacrifices at an altar, and they are located in Jerusalem. We're now ready to apply the second principle and look for a pattern common to these passages and the Feast of Trumpets. If such a pattern exists, we could then extrapolate our findings in a search for the meaning of the feast and, importantly, the mountaintop historical event for the nation of Israel related to this feast. Since there presently is no recognized mountaintop event for this feast, certainly nothing of the level of the first four feasts and their mountaintop events, 
we may conclude that this feast is the next one in God's prophetic calendar for Israel and the next mountaintop event in its history. So let us turn to our first clue, the passages in 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 5. Both record the same event, the dedication of Israel's first temple built by Solomon in 960 BC. Now, we're going to focus in on the Chronicles passage as it really gives us the most information for what we're looking for. Wherefore, all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto the king in the feast which was in the seventh month. Now, most commentators and Bible teachers don't attempt to identify what feast this is. And in fact, most do not even attempt to discuss the feast aspect with respect to this passage. I believe this is a grave oversight if this is a reference to the Feast of Trumpets. Since there are three feasts in the seventh month, we must confirm if the dedication did in fact occur on the first day of the seventh month, the Feast of Trumpets. The answer is found in the use of the word zikar, meaning to remember and then act. So here in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 42, Solomon asks God to remember, zikar, the mercies of David thy servant. And then he will expect an action from God in that remembrance. He asks this after repeating God's promise to King David of verse 16 where he says, There shall not fail thee a man in my sight to sit upon the throne of Israel. Thus, Solomon's asking God to remember that he's promised there will always be a king of Israel when Israel is in the land. Then, he continues by speaking of a future day, when God's people will have been scattered and those in Israel will be fearing for their enemies. Then they will cry out to God for deliverance through his king. Thus, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, we read, When thy people Israel be smitten down before the enemy, because they have sinned against thee, and shall turn again to thee, and confess thy name, and pray, and make supplication unto thee in this house, that's in the temple, then hear thou in heaven, and forgive the sin of thy people Israel, bring them again unto the land which thou gavest unto their fathers. This is Solomon's commitment and prayer to God. A slightly different wording and a very familiar verse is recorded in Second Chronicles 7.14, where God says, If my people, which are called by my name, that's Israel, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, and forgive their sin, and heal their land. You see, here Solomon's not merely reminding God of a forgotten promise, but instead is looking for a response from God in a future day when Israel is threatened by its enemies, when they've been apart from God and haven't turned to him, that in that future day God will remember this promise to turn to them when they turn to him. Recall in part one of our video, 
we noted that Zakar is a memory calling for action. Now, following many offerings, including burnt offerings, God responds to Solomon's prayer by sending fire from heaven down to consume the offering, and then God fills the temple with his glory in chapter 7, verse 1. You see, we see two characteristics here of the Feast of Trumpets, a memorial or zakar response and burnt offerings by fire unto the Lord. Now in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 10, it tells us the dedication lasted a period of 23 days. Now, if you look at your feast calendar, which is also available on our website, a quick look at this calendar shows that when you add up the length of all three seventh-month feasts, from Trumpets, Atonement to Tabernacles, from that first day of the seventh month to the end of Tabernacles, you get exactly 23 days. If the Feast of Dedication was the Day of Atonement, or the Feast of Tabernacles, the total would fall far short of 23 by excluding the days from the Feast of Trumpets to the Day of Atonement. Therefore, I believe it's safe to conclude that the dedication event began on the first day of the seventh month, the Feast of Trumpets, and then the celebrations continued until the end of the third feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, in observance of the covenant requirement of observing each of the three feasts in this month. Now let's check the characteristics of this event with those of the Feast of Trumpets. Remember, there were seven characteristics. Therefore, let's see if they all are part of this day. First of all, the event occurred in the seventh month, probably on the first day of the month. That's the first characteristic. It was a day of setting aside normal activities. Therefore, it would have been a day of no servile work or a Sabbath day. That's our second characteristic. God was called upon to remember and then to act. That's our third characteristic. Further, there is an anticipation of days when the enemies of Israel will come upon Israel and Israel will call with alarm. The alarm will be given to the people. That's the fourth characteristic. And there were offerings made by fire unto the Lord at an altar on this day. That's the fifth characteristic. Obviously, the gathering was in Jerusalem and it was of all the people of Israel. Sixth characteristic. And finally, they began to observe the remaining two feasts of the seventh month. This is in fulfillment of the covenant, the seventh characteristic. Now, if this were the only occasion to occur on the first day of the seventh month, certainly the dedication of the temple would appear to be a mountaintop event in Israel's history and be worthy of a special feast. But as we continue our investigation, we find that this is but one of three such events. And we must remember, great though the temple was, it was eventually destroyed. Further, the emphasis of Solomon's prayer is on a future day when Israel is not walking with the Lord, when Israel is in grave danger of its enemies, a day when they must in alarm, call unto God to deliver them. 
perhaps we will see a pattern develop pointing to that future day, which would truly be a mountaintop event for Israel. Having observed the first historical event of significance on the Feast of Trumpets, the dedication of the temple, we will now look to the second biblically recorded occurrence of this feast. In doing this, we'll consider whether God is beginning to follow a pattern with this feast that will ultimately define not only the meaning of the feast, but also will picture the mountaintop historical event for national Israel. The second recorded national event on the Feast of Trumpets comes 400 years after that dedication of the temple by Solomon. Once again, Israel has fallen away from the Lord and now has been taken into captivity by the nation of Babylon. Ezekiel describes the falling away from God and into idolatry that culminated in God's removal of his presence from the temple in chapters 10 and 11. I would urge you to look at that and to perhaps consider our booklet on the glory returns, which describes God's leaving of the temple and eventual coming back. As a consequence of this national sin by Israel over these 400 years, God acted according to his covenant promise by sending the nation into exile for 70 years. This exile prevented Israel from its covenantal sacrifices and observance of the Feast of the Lord. But that same covenant also promises eventual restoration. Therefore, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, God promises that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. In other words, God promises that after 70 years of exile, he promises them that he will visit, or that will mean to exercise oversight over them. I'm going to use the word to remember them, to act and bring them back to Jerusalem. Just as at the dedication of the temple, God again reiterates the principle that when Israel shall call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. That's again in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 12 and 13. Thus, after 70 years of exile, God fulfills this promise. In Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we find that God prompts King Cyrus of Persia, who is now the king over all the exiled Israelis, God prompts the king to allow a remnant to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild their temple. Now, based upon the context of the entire chapter 29 of Jeremiah, we presume that this was in response to the remnant turning back to God and praying to the Lord. Upon the return of the remnant to Israel, we find them in a state of alarm 
Ezra 1 verse 3 says, For fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. You see, because of this fear, verse 1 tells us that national Israel responds to their fear by gathering as one man to Jerusalem. When do they do this? According to verse 6, on the first day of the seventh month and began to offer sacrifices. This was the year 538 B.C. Here, just as at the dedication of the temple, Israel reestablishes her covenant relationship to God, now back in the land, according to the law of Moses, verse 2 tells us, by gathering to offer burnt offerings upon an altar in Jerusalem at the Feast of Trumpets. This is all found in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Now, as they continued to observe the three feasts of the seventh month, for verse 4 tells us they're going to observe all three feasts, thus the pattern of this observance follows the characteristics of the dedication of the temple in Solomon's day. But notice carefully, Israel can begin covenant sacrificing at an altar without a temple. This is very important. This means they merely have to set up an altar in Jerusalem at the temple site in order to start covenant living. For we read in verse 6, But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Now, if we think about this, we have two historical events that appear to be establishing a pattern with respect to this significant feast. Now, having investigated two historical events on the Feast of Trumpets, we once again find that less than 100 years from this event that we have just read in Ezra, Israel has once again fallen away from the covenant obedience to the law of God and, as before, are facing danger from its enemies. In 44 BC, word had come to Nehemiah, that's King Artaxerxes' cupbearer, word had come to him that the remnant in the land of Israel are in great affliction and reproach. In response to prayer, God moves the king to allow Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. Upon his arrival in Jerusalem, Nehemiah encounters opposition from Sambelet, that's the governor of Samaria, and his allies, the Arabians, Amorites, and Ashdodites. We see that in chapter 4, verse 7. And they have conspired, and we read in verse 8, to come and to fight against Jerusalem. Israel is again in danger of its enemies that surround them. Recognizing the danger, Nehemiah has armed the builders who are rebuilding the walls, and he provides trumpets to be blown to raise the alarm if an attack is imminent. That's his verses 18 through 20, where in verse 20 we read, At the sound of the trumpet resort, assemble, ye thither unto us, our God shall fight for us. See that? They're to blow the trumpet in alarm 
because of their enemies, and God will come and deliver them. With the start of the seventh month, the remnant of Israel gathers near the Temple Mount as one man, according to chapter 8, verse 1 of Nehemiah, where in the city of Jerusalem. And in verse 2 we read, Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding, notice, upon the first day of the seventh month. On this occasion, on this Feast of Trumpets, we read that Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, and Ezra opened the book, that was the scriptures, in the sight of all the people. This is verses 4 through 5. Now, in verse 9 of Nehemiah 8, it tells us that all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. You see, they had become convicted by the scriptures. The people turned back to the Lord. They recommitted themselves to obeying the covenant and observing the feasts in verse 14. Now, chapters 9 through 12 of Nehemiah relates God's historic preservation of the nation, lists the people who recommit to obedience to the covenant. Finally, Nehemiah voiced the nation's plea to God in his last words. Is this going to sound familiar? Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Nehemiah 13, verse 31. With these words, this passage in Nehemiah ends the historical record of the Old Testament. After almost 2,000 years of waiting for God to remember them, Israel is now back in the land and they possess Jerusalem. Sadly, she's a very secular nation that does not observe the covenant. Now during the Holocaust, and even to this day, many Israelis wonder if God has forgotten them. Each year though, this question is expressed in the Jewish observant of Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of Av. For this is the anniversary of the destruction of Solomon's temple in 386 BC and the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD by Israel's enemies. On Tish B'Av, Israel recites Lamentations chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Very relevant passage, for Jeremiah expresses Israel's desire for God to remember them. Jeremiah says, Wherefore dost thou forget us forever, and forsake us so long? Turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned, renew our days as of old. When it says, turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, it's saying, restore us, Lord, to you, and you'll restore us. For over 2,000 years, Israel has waited and depended and counted on God's covenant promise found in Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 42, where God promises to remember to Zikar my covenant with Jacob, also my covenant with Isaac, also my covenant with Abraham will I remember, and I will remember the land. This promise is counted upon that God under the covenant will remember Israel, will restore the kingdom to them, 
and that kingdom will last forever. Thus, the answer to Israel's question and God's promised remembrance fits the pattern we have seen in these three previous events of the Feast of Trumpets. However, after 2,000 years of waiting, fulfillment and restoration of Israel to covenant relationship with her Lord would truly be a mountaintop event in Israel's history. Now, as investigators of this mystery, we must now search the scripture to see if there is a fourth time that would fit the pattern that God has established, the Feast of Trumpets. The key is to look for a time when Israel will be threatened by its enemies and only God can save them. A time where the church cannot help and in fact must not be present. For the church to be present during that time would add confusion with respect to the feast. For the focus has to be on Israel and upon this feast when this occurs. When God then remembers Israel by deliverance, the nation will turn to him. They will respond by returning to sacrifices and covenant observance of the feasts, following exactly the pattern established by the first three Feasts of Trumpets. As we search the scriptures for just such an incident, we turn to Ezekiel. For there we find a prophetic event that appears to fit these conditions. If you'll look at Ezekiel 37 through chapters 45, God outlines three future mountaintop events for the nation of Israel, events that coincide with the last three feasts of the Lord. That outline found in chapters 37 through 45 is as follows. 37 talks about the return of Israel to the land and God now working with Israel. Following this battle of 38 and 39, we have a clear description of millennial life, the future kingdom for Israel. As we'll see in our next two videos, the video on the Day of Atonement and on the Feast of Tabernacles, that they both teach of the cleansing of Israel and the Millennial Kingdom. Therefore, we have to place the events of the Feast of Trumpets before Ezekiel 40. Thus, in some way, Ezekiel will include the Feast of Trumpets. Let's see how this could be. We, we have to kind of approach it from a back door, if you will, by turning to the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. For Daniel's writing of the latter days in chapter 9 and of God's plan for Israel in the 70 weeks of prophecy, Daniel writes, and he, that's the Antichrist, shall confirm the covenant. This is a treaty or an agreement with many, that's Israel, for one prophetic week. Prophetic week is seven years. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. 
In another video, we'll explain Daniel chapter 9 in its details about the 70 weeks of Daniel. But for now, we're going to look and focus in on this agreement that the Antichrist makes with Israel. All conservative Bible teachers agree that this verse is the only biblical verse that refers to this agreement. That this agreement made at the start of the prophetic week of seven years and will end, be ended by the Antichrist at the midpoint of those seven years, the period we call the Tribulation. While many teach that this agreement is a peace treaty, if we look at this verse carefully, we see it only mentions Israel's right to observe covenant sacrifices and offering. There's nothing about peace in it. It's merely a permission for Israel to sacrifice again in Jerusalem. As good detectives, we cannot go beyond what the scripture tells us. Therefore, we can only focus on this agreement allowing sacrifices and offerings. As we have shown earlier, sacrifices and their necessary altars are part of the covenant. Therefore, by the midpoint of the tribulation, we see that Israel is in the process of observing the covenant with her Lord in Jerusalem. The Antichrist obviously comes and ends that observance and ongoing observance by Israel at the midpoint. Now, because the city of Jerusalem is still being trodden down by the Gentiles during the tribulation, Israel has to have Gentile permission for the sacrifices to be done, including burnt offerings. Now, as good Sherlock Holmes detectives, we conclude that some great event must have turned the hearts of the nation of Israel back to God and caused them to renew their covenant relationship and to ask to begin sacrificing in Jerusalem. And whatever that event is, the Gentile world must have allowed it. Observing the details of those interim chapters, chapter 38 and 39 of Ezekiel, remember they occur just before the millennium, but they also occur after Israel has begun to return to the land, apparently after a long absence and the land had been neglected. We conclude that the battle of the chapters 38 and 39 occur after the church is removed from the rapture and right before the start of the tribulation. For a much greater explanation of why I believe that's exactly where they fit, I would hope you would watch our video series on the Battle of Gog Magog. Now, as we turn and focus on Ezekiel 38 and 39, we find that Israel is under a great threat of war from Russia, Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Sudan, and Libya in the latter days. Israel must be just quaking at this point with such a great army approaching them, and thus Israel would be in great fear. Isaiah Writing of the latter days that lead to the millennium, the same period that we're looking at at 38 and 39, says, It shall come to pass in that day. Now that day is a clue. That's always used of the latter days, the day of the Lord beginning, which would include Ezekiel 38 and 39 through the tribulation leading us to the millennium. It shall come to pass in that day that the great 
trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria, and the outcasts in the land of Egypt, they shall come, shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. If we look at Numbers 10, verse 9, God gives instructions to Israel for just such a day. God says, And if you go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresseth you, then you shall blow an alarm with trumpets. Remember the great trumpet of Isaiah. Now they are to blow an alarm with trumpets. And notice what will happen in Numbers 10, verse 9. Blow an alarm with trumpets, and ye shall be remembered. Zakar, before the Lord your God. And what will happen? Ye shall be saved from your enemies. The enemies come, blow the alarm, and God will remember them and save them from their enemies. So back in Ezekiel 39, verse 6, God does just this for Israel. For God says, I will send a fire on Magog, and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. His name will be known again, and I will not let them pollute my holy name any more. And the heathen, that's the Gentiles, shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. In verse 8, God adds, Behold, it is come, and it is done, saith the Lord God. This is the day whereof I have spoken. What day? Where has he spoken about it? I think Ezekiel answers this. And Jeremiah's lament for Israel with these words of God in chapter 39 of Ezekiel in verse 28 and 29. Here is the answer. What is the day? The day is when I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations. Then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen, but I have gathered them unto their own land and have left none of them any more there. Notice carefully now, neither will I hide my face any more from them. For I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. God has been hiding his face from Israel prior to this, but on that day he will turn and face his nation of Israel. Israel. This day God remembers Zikaron, his covenantal people Israel, and turns to them to be, according to Ezekiel 39.22, the Lord their God from that day forward. I believe the world's recognition of what God did for Israel, according to Ezekiel 39.21, and the response of the Jewish people to their God. Now, not individual salvation necessarily, but national turning results in the world Gentile governments permitting Israel to erect an altar in Jerusalem to begin covenantal sacrifices again with her Lord. Is that day a day worthy of a mountaintop event for Israel? Most certainly, yes. 
after almost 2,000 years of God hiding his face from his nation, Israel. God remembers Israel turning back to them with the blowing of trumpets when he no longer hides his face from them. This restoration is dramatically symbolized by Israel's offering sacrifices upon an altar to her God in Jerusalem per the covenant. When? Why, that day, the first day of the seventh month, the Feast of Trumpets. I believe we have solved the mystery and determined the meaning of the Feast of Trumpets, a yet prophetic future event to come for the nation of Israel. Once that event occurs, very rapidly, we have the seven-year tribulation, we have the second coming of Jesus Christ, and we have the millennial kingdom. Right after the Feast of Trumpets comes the Day of Atonement, and then comes the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And we will see in our next two videos that those two feasts clearly fit this period, the end of the tribulation and the millennial kingdom. Now, until our next video, may the Lord bless you mightily, and we'll either see you here or in the air.